Enjoy! And welcome. My name is Shari Irwin. I'm the producer of new work here at Queensland Theatre and it's my absolute pleasure to host this Quality Time podcast. Before I introduce my three guests, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that this conversation we're about to have is happening on Yagara and Turrbal country, the unceded lands of those people. And um, as well as my respects, I wanted to add my gratitude that those old wise people from way back took the time to share their knowledge about this place, about the conversations that happened here so that the elders we have with us today are able to give us this very deep and rich context about where we live and where we work and what we do so that the conversations we're having today and into the future are, you know, are interconnected into that. So that's something I'm really grateful for. So I have um, Vaishnavi, Merlin and Mop with me today and I might let them introduce themselves to the listeners and maybe share, I guess, as much context about yourself, what you do, why you're here, where you came from, anything like that. Share as much context as you'd like with our listeners so we get a good, good picture of who you are. Sure. Hi, I'm Merlin Tong. I'm an actor and a playwright. I'm originally from Singapore, but I'm currently based in the Brisbane. <laughs> yeah. And you've just been doing a show though. I have. I have. I just came back from Darwin doing a show called New Babylon and it was a lot of fun and fabulous and I love Darwin. It's so, <laughs> they have laksa competitions. <gasps> laksa competitions. So um, they take their food very seriously. I appreciate that. Great. Thank you. Nice to be. Hello, my name is Vaishavi. I am based in Sydney, but of Indian heritage. That's where I was born. I am an actor and a Bharatanatyam dancer, which is classical Indian dancer. I wish I could write, looking at both of you, <laughs> but I can't. So uh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and you too, Shari, you're a writer too. I do, I do. In good company. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Ngop Phan. I'm a Vietnamese heritage. I was born in Alice Springs mm. and um, I'm an actor, a wannabe playwright and uh, a professional dancer in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and singer to that. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll, I'll just uh, chime in there too. So obviously you know my title here at Queensland Theatre, but when I'm not working for Queensland Theatre, I'm a writer, director, performer as well. And I've got um, Chinese-Indonesian heritage on my mum's side and Pakiha New Zealand heritage on my dad's side. So I'm the first one born on this country mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And I thought I might start things off with a little anecdote that some of you might have been privy to. It, it reminded me of what I first thought of after watching White Pearl. And so essentially um, a, a few years ago now, there was an emerging writing program to find Asian Australian playwrights in Australia. And this program was run by Contemporary Asian Australian Performance and what was then called Playwriting Australia. So they did a great program called Lotus to find all the Asian Australian voices who are writing for the stage or thinking of writing for the stage. And they brought us all together from around the country to Sydney for a week's workshop of awesome things, listening to other playwrights talk about their writing, their culture, how it informed their work. Um, we got to meet each other, which was fantastic, and got to practice our writing. And so there was a bunch of us who were in Sydney but weren't from 
from Sydney. And I remember about halfway through the week, we had had dinner out after that day's workshop and we were trying to make our way back to the hotel. And we're on a street corner, you know, at a big intersection somewhere in Sydney and where there's probably about 10 of us, you know, and we're, we're standing near the traffic lights and we're all looking at our phones and pointing up the street and trying to look for landmarks going, no, 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 the hotel's this way. No, uh, wait a second, didn't we turn down that road? So we're all trying to figure out how we get back to the hotel. And as we're doing this, this, this drunkard guy, maybe he was tipsy, sort of stumbles down the street and he sort of busts through the crowd that is us and stands in the middle of it and he's sort of shoving us out of the way and he's like, looks around, he goes, ah, you bloody Asians, you never know where you're going. And, you know, this silence befell the group because we're like, well, dude, that's, that's really harsh and, you know, we're not, you know. We're not from here. We're just a bit lost, you know. <laughs> and in that silence, this guy sort of straightened up and, peered at us and he looked slowly around at everyone's faces. This is like 10 to 15 different people he's staring in their faces and he goes, wait a minute, <laughs> you're all different kinds of Asians. <laughs> and the whole group burst out laughing and all the tension was gone after that because he was totally right. We were all different kinds of Asians. And, because and we didn't know where we were going. <laughs> yeah, we still didn't know where we were going. But it, it was kind of a really, it became our unofficial motto for the week, I think, and realising that that umbrella term, you know, Asian-Australian is enormous because it captures mm. so many different cultures and, you know, traditions and there's just as many differences between Asian-Australians mm. as there are commonalities. It was a really kind of funny moment of going, oh, yeah, we, we have a lot in common but there's also so much richness in our diversity. Mm. And so after watching White Pearl um, on Thursday night, I was reminded that there are different kinds of Asians <laughs> in that play as well and mm. I think that's that's something that I, I can't recall seeing on stage before mm. where a number of Asian cultures are represented in one show. So I guess I wanted to ask you, Vaishnavi, just what was it like to, to be in that work, to rehearse it? You've done two seasons or in your second season of yeah. that work now, so you've had a bit of a journey with it. And Merlin, you were in the first season yeah. too. What's it like meeting a work like that as an artist, being in that rehearsal room, putting it in front of an audience? Oh, it was just so blissful to walk into the rehearsal room in that first season and then in the second season this year and be able to have a, you know, a decent role with five or six other women of Asian heritage who also have a decent role mm. and are not in a stereotypical role that you would normally see. That was insanely liberating and so exciting because I can count on one hand the number of times that I've been in a situation like that where you're actually able to play with people of the same wider heritage and not compete against them. Mm. <laughs> and that it just unlocked so much for all of us, I think. I don't know how you felt, Merlin, in that first season. Mm. No, absolutely. And I remember those early conversations we had in the room too were just phenomenal because the casting was fantastic that we were actually cast according to like the Singaporean Chinese. I'm Singaporean Chinese and yeah. they really took pains to find everyone who's from that heritage. And I was just going to say, while that sounds a bit of a no-brainer, that's actually relatively rare, would you say, mm. in your experience as an actor that you're actually playing the, you know, a, a role that is the race that the role is written to be. Yeah, definitely. Sure. And I think um, part of the reason is because there aren't uh, that many plays, at least in Australia, that are programmed or written for 
specific cultural backgrounds mm. and also it's seen as a risk to program or write those characters. So to be able to actually step into a character who has a similar story or connection to land or culture or not, in some cases with my character, um, was really great and very, very different. Mm, absolutely. And I remember like the discussions we had were so nuanced because mm. y- you couldn't actually, you have to cast the person from that heritage because yeah. it's so specific. I remember Matt, <laughs> he was just like, his mind was blown yeah. by all these conversations and the specificity and the history and the current tensions and just, and to have those robust conversations, they really bled into the work as well. Mm. Uh, it was really blissful, like you yeah. said, Vaishnavi. Yeah, I've never had that experience before. Because the character you played, Merlin, was Sunny Lee, the Singaporean. Was there something when you read it for the first time that made you go, oh, this feels very true or to your experience? And when I was in Singapore, I worked in advertising too. So (laughs) I was very much part of that kind of white pearl culture, you know, clear you. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was shocking to to read that role and see… I mean, I write Singlish in my kind of work, but you know, I write it, I perform it. But for this to come from someone else mm. and to who write… Who isn't even who Singaporean. Isn't Singaporean. Yeah, yeah, to write colloquially how we speak, it, it was astounding. I, I say this to people too, it's not a generic Singaporean role. Even in the description at the front, the first yeah. page, like Sunny Lee and the way she describes it's a very specific kind of Singaporean person with a specific kind of history. Like they're very into American dude bro kind of speak mm. and but they do speak in, uh, you know, with Hokkien and things like that, which means their heritage actually, they won't be very upper class. They'll be lower to middle or lower moving mm. to middle. So it's incredibly specific character, which it was just a joy to to see that on the page. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I noticed that too, actually, after watching the show. It isn't so much just representing different cultures on stage, but a lot of kind of commentary about class and mm, classism yeah. and not just where you're from, but where do you sit on that social hierarchy of the haves and have-nots and how much education mm. have you had? That that Absolutely. became really apparent too. Absolutely. Yeah. Mop, you saw the show with me for the first time yeah. on Thursday. What was your first impression? I loved it. I was thinking about it afterwards and I'm like, I realised how conditioned I was and I didn't say a lot to you, Shari, because I was like, I'm processing so much because, like you said, seeing all these amazing performers with um, different Asian heritage on stage, they're all main characters within this world Mm. and it's a world that it hasn't been designed for the average white audience to kind of put them in a box in so it was just like that corporate world and so I just went there's layers upon layers and it's the it's the meta as well like it's not just the world of the play but it's it's what the political statement of this play is doing like having Mm. casting correctly having an all-female cast it was really quite moving for me and I'm still dissecting it Mm. and Mm. seeing kind of like how detached I am from my heritage and being really very humbled and really excited to see work like this on on, on stage and I was really moved and I thought everyone's performance was like so, so cool. The other thing that I thought was like 
There was a show that I worked on and there was a time when he put storyteller that talked about how his family would say, if you're going to marry an Asian, you've got to make sure you marry a, like a princess Asian, like a, a mm. Japanese or a, a Chinese. And then fair not skin. Fair skin. Uh, a fair skinned uh, Asian, uh, not a jungle Asian, uh, like Vietnamese. Uh, and I'm Vietnamese or, you know, Filipino. Or, and it was wow. so interesting from that perspective, kind of sitting in the audience going, I'm a jungle Asian compared to these yeah. to these characters up there. So that was a interesting disconnect for me and, and reconnection. So, yeah, mm. that was my... I had friends who came and saw the show in the first season who aren't of Asian background and it surprised me how much it surprised them that the whitening industry existed. <laughs> oh, I just yeah, had yeah. no yeah. idea. Even Matt was shocked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Matt, who plays the French guy. The one guy in the The cast. one token white guy in the play. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd grown up with knowing about, like in India, we have these creams called Fair and Lovely and that's just the thing to, to wear. And my mum would, it was just part of our language, I guess, mm. you know, mm. and you would see ads for it and it's just so normalised and everything. And mm. for people to come up to me after the show and be like, this kind of thing exists? Like, <laughs> where can you buy it? How? Wow, what, what? And I just thought, what? Yeah. How, how can you not know? Yeah. I remember day one of rehearsal, I actually brought um, a little packet of uh, face masks yeah. called White Pearl Face Masks yes. for Priscilla. And she was like, holy wow. shit, this yeah. is real. I got it in 7-Eleven in Taiwan. Like, I always <laughs> pick up face masks. And I just grab a whole bunch. I yeah. didn't realise I picked up a whitening one too. But it's just, it's that common. 7-Eleven yeah. yeah. is right there. You go to any Indian beauty parlour here mm-hmm. and if you ask for it, I don't, and this is why I don't get facials from there anymore. Mm. But if you ask for a facial, they will automatically put in a whitening, mm. brightening thing for yeah, you yeah. as part of the treatment. Yeah. When yeah. I was in Vietnam, my, my cousins took one look at my face and went, you know, we can zap those freckles off. And then pick <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, so you can be, you know, so you can go back to Australia and you will be more fair-skinned and, and more, you know, you'll fit in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I like my freckles. Yeah, yeah. my and grandma tutted my freckles as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, oh, oh dear. Oh, do- oh dear. You've been in yeah. the sun too much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm in Australia, it's only yeah. sun. Yeah. 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 Going on a bit further about audience reception, like you were saying, there are some audiences that are just go, is that a thing? And really when you think about the opposite, like tanning lotions and yeah. sunbeds yeah. and all of that, it's, it's kind of the same mindset. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to know how you've found the audience reception to the work because I, I don't think I'm going to shock anyone in saying that there's, there's not a lot of Asian-Australian audiences that come to see Queen's Anne Theatre work. There are some, but it's certainly not the, the majority of our audiences. So, yeah, I guess I'm interested in, in what you've noticed, where you've performed it, the makeup of those audiences mm. and the kind of reactions you get from different groups of those audiences. Uh, last night I saw the show and I think I, me and my friend, we were the only two mm. Asians Asian in the people. audience and our laugh points were completely different. Mm, 100%. I was so surprised. Like, so like, different, ah! different like jokes no one land. was laughing. I'm like, oh. With different people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that yeah. might happen. Whereas in Parameta, we performed yes. in Parameta for the first season. It was a in lot Sydney, of yeah. Asian people. And Parramatta is, is a very multicultural city yes. in Sydney and the jokes there specifically to um, particular Asian cultural references landed 
mm-hmm. almost every night. Yeah. We've only done, what, three or four shows here so far. Based on those four shows, I can say that um, a lot of those jokes uh, at least are not getting a an audible mm. <laughs> response. But it's funny because after the first scene or the first two scenes, you can kind of gauge yeah. exactly what kind of audience you have. Yeah, so it, it's, it, it, it's a different vibe. Different They're laughing story. at things they, that people didn't did, laugh yeah, in yeah, Sydney. Yeah, yeah, so like, different oh, laugh that's points. Funny. That's so how do you know if there's, you know, there's Singaporean oh, people in the, in the yeah. audience? So how do you... Like yeah, yeah, yeah. my first scene with um, Vaishnavi, I have a line like, I don't know, I don't know what the word was, but I say a specific word and immediately I can tell you where all the Singaporeans yeah, and Malaysians yeah. are sitting. Yeah. Right. There, 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 there. Yeah. Just yeah. instantly. That's and how I that's knew where Merlin was sitting yesterday. She came to see the, <laughs> saw the show and I was like, oh, yeah, she's there. She loved it. One laugh at that <laughs> Singaporean The swearing and all. <laughs> and you guys changed it a bit because I used to say yeah, the yeah. alphabet and yeah, she said yeah. the whole word. So I just lost my shit. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my friend both. And everyone was just like, nothing. I'm like, ah, it's very funny, guys. Very funny. <laughs> and from the, I guess, the Anglo-Australians that you've chatted to about the show, what what do you feel that they take away most besides maybe a discovery of whitening cream? Yeah. Um, <laughs> The world mm-hmm. might be a lot happier if people just exchanged melanin, you know, <laughs> melanin trade. I think that, well, hopefully there would definitely take away an, an appreciation that just like your drunk friend that you encountered, that there is more than one type <laughs> yes. of Asian. Yes. But going further than that, I really hope that they then see that we don't stand in these characters as um, you know, the epitome of what a Singaporean mm-hmm. girl is or mm-hmm. an Indian girl or, you know, mm. this and that because there's so much complexity and nuance within that itself. Mm. And that is something that I just really, I've been thinking about a lot actually and I hope that Anglo audiences don't go away with a very narrow idea based on, you know, what exposure they get from the play. But I hope they also go away with an understanding of like just how complex the relations between Asian countries are you know mm. we don't we're not all just one Happy big family. country yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. even like inside that. countries like if I think of Indonesia yeah. where yeah. my mother's from she's Chinese Indonesian so mm. that puts her in a certain place in the kind of yep. social hierarchy yeah. with certain disadvantages and other advantages yeah. but you know when you think of kind of the traditional people in this you know 15 1500 islands archipelago of, of Indonesia, like every mm. area has its own dialect, has its own customs, its own costume, mm. its own everything. Mm. It reminds me a bit of when you look at the map of First Nations mm. and, and languages in Australia, yeah. there's hundreds of them and they're all mm. completely yeah. different. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not just kind of one country with one culture. There's yeah. there's lots of other little things that I imagine. It's mm. certainly the same in Indonesia that you, it's very hard to go, well, here's what every Indonesian and feels or thinks or speaks. It's in, just in not so true. so many shows that we're cast in, I don't know how everyone else feels about this, but I'm, like sometimes when you're the only Asian character, you feel the entire continent on yeah. your shoulder. Yeah. Like you're meant to represent everyone. So you're meant to be this perfect Asian, which doesn't yeah. exist. So the liberating thing, I think, with White Pearl is that we could be, we could be all nasty. Mm. We're yeah. nasty, complex characters and... Mm. Um, I find myself constantly having to reassure like uh, if I have white collaborators in shows that the Asian characters, it's not a stereotype. Like anything that's bad, they're like, oh no, 
it's a stereotype. We we gotta clean this character up. But mm. the beauty of White Pearl that we're all so yeah. many of us on stage, we were then allowed to play a complex, mm. yeah. nasty, fun character mm. and not just be the one thing. Have you felt that lock the kind of burden of responsibility to kind of represent your entire culture in certain roles you've played? Yeah. Well, it's mainly been when I go in for castings. And then, funnily enough, I get cast in other roles that people want to take a risk on. Mm-hmm. So that's another burden in and of itself. It's like you're you're being a representative of not being a representative of an Asian woman. <laughs> and As in it's a, it's a risk to cast a Vietnamese police yeah. woman? Yeah, that's it. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So it's another layer on top of that and then you're like, so who am I representing? And, and that gets really confusing. But when I have played what people perceive as a Vietnamese woman, then it is a very narrow tunnel to kind of travel down. And then especially because I don't speak Vietnamese, but I understand it. So there's there's an expectation that's laid in mm. and um, that you know the language and you're fluent and what have you. And, you know, I've had some instances where I've been interviewed and assumed that I have a big Vietnamese community and been put in a position where I don't, but I couldn't voice that because it's a, you know, it's a... Because it feels awkward to be able to claim that you're Vietnamese but then feel that yeah. you don't have a Vietnamese community around you. Yeah, because there's there's a it's that mm. expectation of, it's an idea of what you are as a performer that yeah. <laughs> that you have a big community that can come and see your show and it's just like well actually I'm uh, I'm a little bit more complex than that and just that narrow thinking is is hard to to push up against and then when you start to challenge then you get scared about you know you you're, you're challenging power as well and so when you're by yourself in those situations mm. this is where the silencing happens it mm. kind of clams you up and and then what the the stuff that I find really hard is that then I become complicit in I've had times where I feel like I'm being complicit in this cycle of expectations mm. on this is the role that you're supposed to be playing. Mm. So it's it's having the courage to kind of break that mold. Mm. And so I've been very conscious of like if I'm going to represent a Vietnamese woman, I'm going to I want to represent a very complex Vietnamese woman that it's not just a a footholder or, you know, a placeholder mm. and do that well and not have shame around that mm. as well. You're so right. I think there is currently an expectation that if you are from um, different cultural heritage, like from an Anglo one, that you, as a performer, you should automatically have a strong connection to that culture, mm. probably should be able to speak a language and yeah. you should have a really strong community that you may or may not be able to bring to a show or, <laughs> uh, you know, call upon for audience. And that's such, that is huge. Yeah. That is so, such a huge weight to put on performers mm. or artists or creators of any kind and it's yeah. everyone's the, nodding here a whole hell of a lot yeah. can't see that on a podcast but everyone's going yes yeah yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's if you just take a step back and think about it like how uh, who else do we ask ask that, to yeah. do that mm. who else have we asked to do that in the mm. past and I think there's just needs to be better ways like you said of working with all kinds of artists with all kinds of experience and mm. connection yeah. Without forcing them to be, oh, you're the Vietnamese one. Yeah. You do this. Mm. Yeah. And then that means that you can bring in this audience and, you know, we'll cram your – and, like, 
And it's weird that people's perceptions of you get morphed to fit what they, they're trying yeah. to get, you know, like for mm. whatever purposes. But, um, yeah, so and, and on top of like if you're, if you're representing, you know, if you're trying to just doing your freaking character, doing your job as an yeah. actor, so there's, there's that job and then there's all of that other stuff that comes outside of it. So it's tricky. It's really tricky to navigate. Mm. You said before, Nock, that you feel somewhat detached from your culture. Yeah. I'm just interested in, I guess, asking other people in the room as well. Like, is that something you can measure or that you feel that you, inside yourself you do measure? Like, whether it's right or wrong, it's yeah. something that you feel inside you that you measure and go, oh, if I'm measuring this connection to Vietnamese-ness, I, I feel I'm not as attached as I should be, you know, finger quotes. And I, I sometimes feel like that about my Indonesian heritage that I I don't I feel often guilty that I, I'm not a fluent speaker of Bahasa Indonesia. And it's, it's a strange conflict inside me of on one hand feeling incredibly connected and proud of, of my mother's side of the family and very very beloved by that that family and mm. feeling like it is another home but also very, very cognizant of how much I don't fit in there and how much I, I may never fit in there because I, I haven't lived there and I, I don't know what it means to live in Jakarta. Mm. So that's something mm. I, I often measure in myself and find myself less than I would like. So, yeah, I'm just interested, Merlin and Vaishnavi, how, how you feel. And I guess Nock and I are coming from different places and that both of us are born in Australia to migrant parents, but you were born in Singapore. I am, Merlin. yeah. And so when did you come to Australia? Uh, about like 12 years ago now, so in my 20s, early 20s, mm. I came here. So, yeah, very um, different experience mm. in that way. For me, sometimes it's almost like the opposite problem. I remember when the you C- have to connect to your Aussie. The, you know, truly, like the like, gosh, what does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> because like when Lotus came up, the playwriting program that we could apply for, mm. you know, I was really excited. I just started to write um, little things, you know, and I saw the program. I, oh my gosh, this looks amazing! But then it said Asian Australian, and so I thought, oh, I don't qualify because I don't have residency mm-hmm. at that point. So mm. I was, I'm Asian, but I don't know how. Australian I am so I almost didn't apply and my white friend was the one like you live here Mm, of course you qualify of course you are Asian Australian I'm like am I and I don't even really identify with the word Asian because I'm from Singapore and I'm Chinese in Mm. Singapore Mm. I'm actually a quarter Indian as well but like you know it's that's just what we go by you're Indian you're Chinese you're Malay Mm. like no one's Asian your grandparents yeah my um my grandparent, my one grandparent is Indian. Oh. Yeah, Sikh Indian, yeah. Oh, from where? Yeah. They're going to be related in a minute. You I know. Yeah, it's, it's a long story. <laughs> I'll tell you later. It's okay. a long story. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so the, 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 the Australian-ness, I'm always like, oh. And Asian-ness, I'm like, I don't know if I am. Yeah. Yeah, Asian. So it, it was weird. But I'm so glad I applied for that. Oh, because because <laughs> it, it, it changed everything. It was really great. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so I'm. Yeah, and I, I can speak the language, you know, um, because I'm from there. But funnily enough, when you I You say go, one language like it's only one yeah. language you can speak, but I know that's not true, <laughs> Merlin Tong. How many languages? Uh, four. That's oh, mm, it, yeah. just four. <laughs> but it's like growing up in Singapore, that's pretty Amazing. typical. You you just pick it up. And But the funny thing is then when I go on tour, like to China or places like that, you uh, we didn't expect this, the company didn't expect this, but you become the translator as well. So on top of being an actor, you're now the translator, you're the producer, you're the liaison in lots of different ways for the Australian cast that's coming with you. So that's mm-hmm. an interesting problem to have that I didn't yeah, foresee. It's another, yeah. another responsibility yeah. that you're not ex- necessarily being 
remunerated yeah, for. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. I really yeah. didn't see that coming. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Vaishnavi? Because you also mentioned mm. that you do Indian traditional dance, which yeah. is beautiful, and it's so. If I'm remembering it right, the detail and specificity of the mm. shapes that not just your body makes, but your hand, your finger, your eyes, like every part yeah. of the body mm. in Indian kind of classical dance. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's but my right. memory of it is it's it's not just incredibly detailed and specific, but but rooted in the very specific meanings yeah, as well. So right. I'm assuming that means that you feel quite connected or kind of your battery is quite full when it comes to kind of the Indian side of your culture. Um, or is that I mean, a, an unfair assumption of mine? You'd think so. And I think actually before I went to drama school or before I started working in the industry, I felt much I felt much more connected to my mm-hmm heritage and it's then it was exactly as you were saying um I sometimes have to keep checking in to see oh am I a good enough Indian (laughs) and then whenever I catch myself thinking that I'm like wait what I never had to question this before like I knew exactly where I stood and particularly because of my connection to dance but also the way I was brought up and you know what we have going on at home I feel very connected to my background in that way. Whenever I go back to India, it feels like home. But there have been so many times where I've gotten auditions or I've walked into a room and then I just think, oh, just like you, I can't speak my mother tongue Mm. fluently, but I can understand it perfectly well. Maybe I'm not good enough. I'm not Indian enough. Oh, they didn't cast me for this because I wasn't you know, dark enough Mm. or didn't look, you know. And Mm. it's just insane that I have Mm. to justify exactly yeah. but it's so easy to get caught into that yeah who taught you yeah. to dance I had two teachers so one of my teachers after a few years she had to get knee surgery so she stopped but I've been with my current teacher for about oh since I was in year nine wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah and it was sort of something you grew up doing like just it was just a thing you did or was it something that your family expected you to do or something you wanted no, to do? No, not at all. So we would have, particularly when I was growing up, we would have these cultural festivals every year. So my dad's from South India. My mum's from like Mumbai, so different states. And so we'd have double the amount of like community festivals <laughs> and religious festivals that we'd go to. And it would be so much fun. Yeah. And all the children and sometimes the adults would put on shows and, and um, dances and, you know, performances and stuff and once I saw this really amazing performance this Bharatanatyam performance by a lady I don't even know I can't remember anything about her apart from the fact that I thought it was just beautiful and so I said oh I want to do that and I was probably in year three or four and that's when I started (laughs) and my dad was really into it because it's the dance form originated in the south of India Mm. and my mom who's not as artistically minded, was like, yeah, you can do it as a hobby, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I started. Um, And I, yeah, and I I kept doing it. So, but for me, it's been amazing because so much of, so much of culture and spirituality and heritage is bound up in that dance. And it's, uh, of course, it's problematic in a lot of ways as well, but I'm choosing to take out of it what I want Mm -hmm. out of that particular Mm -hmm. traditional dance form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot of talk about actually nuance and like those increments of 
what's true or what's not true. And I was just reminded of something that Anchuli Felicia King, the writer of White Pearl, has put in the program notes. And she finishes her notes by saying, the play is thematically overloaded because at its core this is a play about nuance <laughs> and the danger of its absence. <laughs> and I guess I just want to put that in her heads in thinking about how to answer this next question, not that it really has an answer, but, you know, in thinking about art, do you think art can conquer racism? Is that uh, crazy idealistic <laughs> dreaming or is it something you feel is possible? Not fan. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, can, I can give my theory while you think of yours if you want because I kind of feel that certainly on a personal level when I see art, that shows me a piece of culture or a story or a human experience from a perspective I have no connection to, my lived experience. I've mm. found that really moving and I found that really educational and it certainly helped me um, just, just widen my lens and open up to compassion. And I guess it's allowed me to open up to nuance. Mm. It's allowed me to, to, to do away with only seeing a, a, a group of people through my my direct experiences with them mm. or what I've read in the media or all the kind of stereotypes. Mm. So I certainly feel that art works on me mm. on a personal level where I, it gives me reason to pause and think and mm. be more open to that. I don't know if it changes systemic racism though. Like I don't, I don't know what it takes to get that critical mass where enough people are individually changed to go, yeah, let's make our governments more fair and our institutions more mm. more fair. So I don't know, but that, that's my take on it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think, like, representation is incredibly important. Mm. And it's hard to speak of shows that you're in, whether that's making a difference. You hope it does, you know, but you don't know. But I can speak from an audience member's perspective. I remember watching a show at um, Brisbane Powerhouse by Elvian Syed, who is a Singaporean mm. writer. I'm sorry, I forgot the title of the show now. But I was deeply confronted by my racism. Mm. Because uh, in, in Singapore, the Chinese people are pretty much like the white people, you know, we're the dominant culture. Mm. And that show was a show set in Malaysia and there was a Chinese character, Malay character, Indian character. And it just gently unfolded. And um, I remember at the end of the show, I had to go and sit by the river and cry <laughs> and mm. cry and cry and cry because I... Uh, yeah, it deeply unfolded the some deep level racism that I still held. Mm. And so just by the experience, I would hope that what we are creating, the shows that we're in, hopefully would have that kind of power on certain audiences too. Mm. And that's how you do it, right? One by one yeah. mm. to make change at the systemic level. Yeah, actually, that makes me remember the first thing I saw in Brisbane that had an Asian performer in it. Probably not the first one in Brisbane, the first one I saw as a uni student because I had I'd left high school kind of dreaming maybe to be an actor and then was very sensible and went, no, I, I never see any actors that look like me mm -hmm. uh, on a stage in Brisbane. And I thought I'd be a bit wasteful to spend three years learning how to do a thing and then not be able to get a job just because I don't look like Juliet. So I, I took a degree that was a bit of a bit of everything instead in terms of theatre. But I remember seeing Anna Yen in her one-woman show called Chinese Takeaway. And there's a beautiful story about, about her mother. And she's a circus performer as well. So it just had incredible kind of physical skill as well mm. as really beautiful storytelling. But it was in the Cremorne Theatre when I saw it. And it was the first time I saw an Asian person owning the stage in their own <laughs> show about their own stuff. And I was like, oh, 
oh, okay, it can be done. <laughs> yeah, so you're right. I do think I do think seeing seeing yourself there makes a difference. Mm. I'm just very humbled by this this conversation so far. I assimilated into white Australian culture, and then my if I'm being really frank, sometimes I found my draw card of being special and standing out was my Asian-ness, even though I'd, I wasn't connected to my Asian-ness. Yep. And then in that process of making art and through the influx of making sure that we do represent and there is diversity and nuance, that in, in that process for me, from my personal experience, has broken down those layers of racism within myself. So... Mm. Mm. Yeah. Are there things in your career you've you've found that you're just sick of doing, you're bored of being asked to do, or have you been lucky in that so far it's been a a good ride? Or you're seeing some patterns now? It's definitely getting better. Mm. Really, really accelerated. I think I'm. I mean, I still consider quite, myself quite a young artist, eight years maybe. You know, but things have accelerated quite rapidly. Um, I had a mentor once who said to me, I think you know the story, but. Someone I really respected uh, say to me uh, as an actor that, you know, you're not going to succeed because, um, for example, if a company like La Boite, the Queensland Theatre does um, Romeo and Juliet, you'll never be Juliet because you're Asian. And mm. I was just crushed. And, mm. um, yeah, like that stuff, like that. How wrong they were. Mm. Yeah, and actually my first gig, because they give the example of La Boite, and my first main stage gig was at La Boite, and I was mm. in a role where I could um, say whatever I want every night. And I told that story to the audience, yeah. and I just told them that this is my first main stage gig, and I feel like I've broken the curse, you know, and they yeah, just went awesome. wild, and it was beautiful. That doesn't happen as much anymore. Then the next wave of weird things that happened to me was people wanted me to work for free a lot. <laughs> yeah. right? One time I met this person, it was a film thing, and I thought... They came to my agent, so it seemed legit. But then they, they talked and talked and talked. It's um, white people writing this film um, about Asians. So then they said, okay, when can you start and all that? And we haven't discussed me or anything. And it became quite abundantly clear that they wanted me to just um, work for free to because I'm Asian and they're white. So I need to do this so that it's oh, legit. Very that odd. That is a pet peeve. Mm -hmm. So odd. And I went to my agent and said, no. And then they had this whole conversation, but they were really, it's like, no, we're coming to our house we should need to do this. Like, it was really bizarre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you have anything, Nog? Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh. Many. But oh. what you guys <laughs> have been talking mm. about. A pet peeve of mine is seeing, like, I was on set and I looked at a call sheet, you know, some of the extras, and they said, two Asian tourists, two Aussie tourists. And I was looking at that going, that says everything. What, what the beep does that mean? <laughs> like... <laughs> And no one picked that up and I went, that's just, it's so subliminal, you know. Mm. And what you were saying, Merlin, mm. am I Australian or am I not? Mm. And to mm. like distinguish between those just as shorthand, that's mm. where, that's a pet peeve. And no one picked it up except for the, the main actress and she sat down and she goes, I saw the call sheet and I'm like, yeah. And it's like what would seem really little but it's so big in terms of systemic racism. Mm. But, mm. yeah, mm -hmm. that's a it's a pet peeve of mine. Mm. So if we had listeners who were really keen to work with any of you or artists from the Asian Australian community or they want to elevate those voices or make new work that might involve an Asian Australian story, what, what would your pointers be about how they go about doing that 
if they aren't Asian themselves. Let's say they're allies, if we're using that, that terminology. You know, what would be your pointers to those artists who want to embrace the cultures that are available, the talent that's available? How do you go about it in a way that's professional, respectful, if they were, you know, what would it take for you to come on board their project? It's a big question. Mm-hmm. Nuance Money, here. I imagine. Money, first of all, helpful. step one. Yeah. <laughs> 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 But I think, like, I I know we laugh at that, but because we're artists (laughs) and, you know, living in Australia with the, you know, government. But I don't think it's – we laugh out of kind of pain, I think, because Mm -hmm. we've done so much work for free from the love and passion of our hearts for the thing. And I think it's time – doing that kind of work is really important, yes, but now it's time for us to also realise that – that work is worthwhile. It is really loaded and there's a lot, there's an entire life's worth of experience that goes into providing that work and it is worth something. So mm. we shouldn't, it should be valued and our time should be valued as well. Mm. I think with like producers and so forth, it's like just supporting those voices, mm-hmm. supporting writing, especially by Asian Australian writers, you know, people of colour, supporting directors. I think that's where the voices will start to emerge uh, strongly and authentically as well. Mm-hmm. The more people in power we mm-hmm. have as well, yeah. in companies that are of colour, that's really exciting because mm-hmm. then I think it starts there. I would say transparency yeah. in conversation. Yeah. Like, I get that we're in this weird space at the moment where... Regarding COVID. Yeah, totally that. That weird space. (laughs) (laughs) There's a few weird spaces, yeah. But in terms of, like, what's PC, like, you know, some people are tentative to... They're wanting to be respectful, but, you know, there's... Well, for me, I've experienced, like, a weird cautiousness, Mm -hmm. which needs to be there. Like, there needs to be a cultural respect but there doesn't need to be a retreat from that and if you don't if you don't know something just say you don't know Mm -hmm. and then go would you be open to helping me understand or I know that I've got a lot of homework to do in terms of making sure that I get this character right and and if you're open I would love to have a conversation but I don't want to put all the pressure on you just open awareness Mm -hmm. about the process of what it's like to perform, let alone represent. Mm. And just acknowledging that, I think that that transparency in that conversation is And can really I add key. to that to not paying for cultural consultancy? Yes. Yeah, that's Absolutely. Another, yeah. So many times I've asked to consult, no pay. Yeah. I think it's, and the same goes for writing Indigenous characters, like you've got mm. to pay, 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 pay for the time. And not for it to be a tack on. Because if it's not established right at the beginning, if you're doing a new work and it's not established right at the beginning what the conversations need to be had at the beginning and it's like a tack on at the end, that's when you're kind of like going, we're too far in the process now okay. and this feels like mm. a, a political tick or it feels like a, this feels like a gesture. This is not embedded in the practical application or process of creating a piece, whether it's establishing like an established work or a new work. I just think that that transparency and that that kind of homework at the right at the beginning of a process mm. and coming in and going, I know I'm going to get things wrong, we're going to trip up, but let's figure it out together and, yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think understanding that there, that 
there will be discomfort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be and that's okay. comfortable in mm-hmm. sitting inside the discomfort, knowing that ultimately the discomfort is for mutual benefit. Yeah. And that the discomfort is temporary. Yep. But absolutely worth worthwhile, I think, if you're going to be authentic with, yeah. with working with people from different cultures and, and the acknowledgement of mm. discomfort creates safety. Yeah, that's a so, really great point. Yeah. Mm. So Say that, that again, the acknowledgement of the acknowledgement of discomfort actually creates safety. Because mm. then you're not pretending anymore. You're mm. not pretending, oh, we know what we're doing or when you don't. And we and sometimes we don't <laughs> we don't know where our footing is in the room. Do you know? And yeah, that's my two cents worth. Yeah, it, it reminds yeah. me of I was at a conference actually about sort of environmental sustainability in Canberra many years ago, and there was maybe one or two First Nations people there, and then we broke off into groups. And I think one group was was supposed to be focused on talking about maybe Aboriginal protocols or Aboriginal sort of sustainability ideas and the irony was was there was only one Aboriginal woman in that group and she was a visitor. She's not from, she wasn't from Canberra so all eyes looked to her and um, we're like, hi, what do you think? And she's like, well, this is a bit ridiculous really because, yes, I'm an Aboriginal woman but I'm a visitor to this particular place so Mm. I'm as much as an outsider as you all are Mm. and every time I come to a place that's not my home, I have to ask the people here, hello, I'm new, what's the right way to do this? And she goes, and I'll get it wrong. Like I'll mess up big time with my own, you know, with mob here in, you know, wherever I'm travelling that's not, that that aren't my own mob. And um, she said, so I'll, I'll mess it up and I'll get it wrong. I'll ask or I'll do it and I'll get it wrong. And But getting it wrong and having someone go, boy, that was wrong, and saying sorry and then learning from it, she's like, mm. that's all you can do. You will get it wrong. So, yeah, I, I think you're completely right now. Getting back to the passion you mentioned before and how so much of it, like all the work and the passion of being an artist and how it, you know, it's worthy of, of being paid of, mm. of the value. I guess I wanted everyone to share, if you can, you know, what was it that um, that made you decide to be an artist, to be an actor? Because I think it's not an easy career anywhere in the world, but I think particularly difficult in Australia where our attitudes to certain parts of the performing arts culture are still, I don't know, I don't, I don't often feel that Australians love their life performance in the way that people in other places of the world love it, like are devoted to it. Mm. And so, yeah, where did your journey start in terms of like, yep, that's what I'm going to do for a living? And, you know, was it difficult to convince your family or, or so on? Um, so my best friend stole something when we were 14 years old from a, from a supermarket and she Great. stole a perfume. And so she had to go to a rehab kind of thing. You oh, go she to got a, caught. She got caught. Yeah. yeah, she got caught by the police. So she had to go for like a... She had to go for counselling, but also like a rehab acting class. <laughs> she didn't want to so go. She could act your out way out. Of- <laughs> so she could be a medic. Act your way out of a life of crime. That's, That's what we're doing school. wrong with our justice system. We need everyone in jail to be an actor. <laughs> I still don't understand what happened there. But anyhow, she took me along to this class because she didn't want to go alone. <laughs> that was my exposure to acting at 14 years old. I'm like, this is cool. Oh, that is I want awesome. to do this. And then later when I was, um, I worked in advertising in Singapore for a few years and then um, my parents had passed away when I was younger. So I had a bit of inheritance come through when I was like 21. And my brother said to me, look, 
this money has come through. It's for you. Do you want to go to Australia and do that course you've been talking about, which is in Murdoch University, writing and performing? Mm. Or do you want me to buy a really fast car? <laughs> so I went, yeah, I think I'll go to Australia. So mm -hmm. then that's how… I, and I always thought it would just be like, be here for a year and a half, do a degree and then go back to advertising. And, but I'm so glad it didn't turn out that way. I've been yeah. here 12 years now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great. I Mine was… Ye old cliche, year three school play. <laughs> what was the play? Um, I can't. It, it was a play that the drama teacher had written. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Based on, like, this is bad memory, but loosely based on 101 Dalmatians or oh, something. I don't know. What were you cast as? I don't even Tell remember. Tell me it wasn't a Dalmatian. It I was a sec like some kind of secretarial okay, role. Right. I wanted to be the queen. I remember that yeah. much, but I wasn't. But I got to paint my nails in the show, so it was fine. <laughs> and I really liked it. And then... And then two years later, that same drama teacher did, rewrote Peter Pan as a school play and was am amazingly cast me as Wendy. Nice. And then yeah. because she cast me as Wendy, cast the Darling family as an Indian family as well. And like looking back on that now, I'm like, whoa, that was, that was like <laughs> so far ahead of its time. <laughs> but at the time I was like, yeah, this is of course, like this is great. Mm. And that was, that was just so amazing. I had such a good time on that play. And then when I went to high school, um, I did drama in, you know, school, whatever, picked it up, wanted to do it for the HSE, but then obviously culturally it's not, uh, being an artist isn't a, something that you do as a career. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't do it for the HSE and went into, like, went to uni, did a law degree, you know, well on my way to doing, having another life. And then I really felt like something, because I hadn't acted for like ages, I was dancing, but I wasn't acting um, and I felt like something was missing. And I went on this holiday with my family. I still remember it. it was in 2013 in January. And I was on this boat at night and I looked up into the stars and it was like we were sailing it through space mm -hmm. because the stars were like all around and reflected in the water as well. And I was by myself just right at the tip. And I thought this is the most amazing, beautiful, incredible thing what am I doing with my life? Like I'm having, you know, a great time, but this isn't what I want to be doing. I want to be performing and mm. storytelling and doing all that kind of stuff, you know? And I just felt such an energy and I thought, yes, this is this, this year I'm going to do it. I'm going to do something else. So I was still finishing uni at that point and started auditioning for the plays in like drama society. And if there is, there was something that, when you hear the stories about the universe putting obstacles in your course to mm. test, that that was it. <laughs> because every single thing, I was rejected. Oh. It was so soul-sucking. I just don't, <laughs> like, oh, my God. It was it was a very cliquey yeah. group at oh, uni. Yeah. Um, so I was really ready to give up by the end of the year. But then I auditioned for, um, like, a small drama ensemble thing and um, I got in and um, it was a little bit more expensive than I would have liked. And my parents were obviously not keen for me to give up my legal career to become an actor or, or even do this part-time course. So I got myself a clerkship at a law firm. <laughs> I worked there for a few months and then saved up and then I paid for it that way. Oh, wow. And then the year after I finished that, I auditioned for drama school and just happened to get in. So it just kind of all flowed together and... Um, 
I had a semester left of law school, but I just finished it while I was at drama school in order to please my parents. And I'm happy that I did, but they, my mum freaked out. I mean, the f- I hope she never hears this, but <laughs> the first thing she said to me when I told her that I got in was, but when will you get married? Oh. <laughs> and I had to take a step back because I thought, what? But how is my life bent at like Beckham right now? Like, <laughs> what? So crazy. But yeah, so it's taken them a long time to come around, but they have now. Mm. So that's that's my really roundabout <laughs> journey to acting. So cool. But like, I'm st- I'm really glad that all of that happened because now I know that this is what I really want to do, mm. no matter what. I mean, last three, last year throughout COVID and stuff, it was really hard mm. to suddenly not have any work. And I know that a lot of my friends were thinking about, is this the thing for mm. them? Mm. But I was like, oh, I just have to wait because I know it's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So cool. How about you, Noel? I originally, like I said, I'm a professional dancer in my mind. I wanted to do dancing and then um I remember it was in high school and all my friends took the elect drama elective and I was like, I don't want to be Nigel in like legal studies by myself. So <laughs> You know, I went into the drama school, uh, drama class, and there was this, um, my drama teacher at the time. This isn't, mind you, this isn't in Alice Springs. It's in the desert. And there was a guy in a skivvy in the middle of summer, this yes. black, severe skivvy. Committed no artist. He's so yes. committed. And his glasses were round. And, and he looked at me because I, I rocked up late. And he looked at me and he kind of shamed me. He goes, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Nock. Who are you? And he goes, I'm Bryn. And I'm like, okay. He goes, you're late. And I'm like, Yes. And then it was became it became like I was more stubborn and I was like, I'll prove to you that I can freaking do this, whatever this is, this drama, whatever it is. And then ended up loving it. And then I still thought that I was going to be a dancer, but I hated ballet. And then when I went to audition for all the dance schools, the week before talking about universe, like putting you know, barriers in your path. I I pulled all the ligaments in my foot. Oh, oh my God. And I was like, I think that's a sign. But I continued to go to the, so stubborn, went to these um, dance auditions. And I, I remember like my first ever audition ever, I was in a room with another girl, just another girl, just two, two people. And she was so elegant. And I was hobbling around <laughs> like this ugly swan trying to do a pirouette. And then I'm like, on your broken ligament. On my ligament. <laughs> and like, you could just see the judges going, she's got tenacity. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm meant to do this. And I ended up like auditioning for like drama schools. And then you too know this. Like I, I didn't speak until I was five. And so this whole journey for me is the expression like, you know, you want to be a performer because you've got this capacity within you and observation and emotion and to be able to do that with words and create worlds is I fell in love with it that way and mm. still falling in love with it. That's beautiful. Mm. To wrap up. Thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. I'd love to keep going. Maybe just a, a little teaser to tell our listeners what's next on your horizon. What are you excited for? What's happening? It doesn't have to be a work thing. It can be a personal thing if that's kind of what's jazzing you at the moment. I'm going to make Nock go first. Oh, me? Because, yeah, I know what's on your horizon with Queen's <laughs> Theatre very soon. Um, yes, I'll be playing... Uh, the role of Big Dung in uh, Boy Swallows Universe that's coming up at uh, 
The Playhouse, which I'm very, very excited about. I just saw the set and I was like, mm. holy It's mother, a big one, isn't it? Mm. Of God. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a biggie and um, very, very, very excited, terrified and excited. <laughs> what excites you about the character you wrote? That she is a matriarchal drug <laughs> distributor, uh-huh. queen of Dara, mm-hmm. and um, mm. and what I'm really excited about is the opportunity to represent, but also create the character which will f- physically well, that transformation is it's going to be fun, and just to be part of that, uh, the ensemble and the story. I mean, the story is amazing, and there's just so much. I could be another podcast but uh, <laughs> yeah cool. I'm uh, just the enormity of it and the reach thanks Merlin I have quite an exciting rest of the year coming up I had the lucky thing that happened you know with COVID when everything got cancelled everything sort of got shoved into this year and then I had existing things this year too so it's been a bit of a wild year um, my next project is in Perth at State Theatre uh, in a show called Enlightenment by Joe Louis so written by a Singaporean Chinese writer a really exciting story of the Monkey King mm-hmm. and I'm playing the Monkey King so it's really oh, cool sick. and uh, my lover's a woman and she's Buddha like, it's, it's so cool it's insane and um, we just did a season in Melbourne so now we're going to Perth and then after that I've got my uh, one woman show Blue Bones, doing a tour to Brisbane, Sydney and Gold Coast. And then also my um, production of Antigone that I wrote for Queensland Theatre is premiering in the UK. In Colchester Theatre. Yeah, in Mercury Theatre in Colchester. So that's, I'm so excited but so sad that I can't go because of COVID. Yeah, Yeah, and then at the end of the year, I'm premiering my uh, new work, Golden Blood, that I've written. It's a two-hander. It's going to be premiering at Griffin Theatre. So Brilliant. Yeah. Fashionably. I will be taking White Pearl to Sydney and Parramatta and Canberra and I think they're going to Adelaide as well. There might be a few little bits and pieces later on, but they're just a bit mum at the moment. Sure, that's Um, cool. But, yeah, so White Pearl for my foreseeable future, which is Mm. excellent. And tell us a little bit for listeners who haven't seen the show yet about the character you play. Oh. He's very different to you in real life. I'm (laughs) I'm pleased to to observe. (laughs) I'm very pleased. Let me tell you, whenever I speak to someone after the show, if I even if I know them or if I don't know them, they're always I can always just see a bit of hesitancy. Like should I <laughs> and which is fair enough. I mean, so for a bit of context, the character I play, Priya, she is the founder and CEO of this startup, cosmetic startup Clear Day. She is an alpha female and very direct. <laughs> Um, knows what she wants and isn't afraid of asking or getting what she wants, um, to put it mildly. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a very diplomatic description. <laughs> there are other characters in the play who describe her a different way, much more succinct. <laughs> yeah. But we'll let people She's on find her own that journey. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for such a great conversation this morning. Uh, all the fun. best for all the exciting stuff coming yeah. up on your horizon. And I hope we get to do this again soon. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Shari. Shari. Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter at QLD Theatre. You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We can't wait to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye!